God does absolutely everything he says he will do. The same God who said that he would flood the earth did it. The same God who said he would come to earth did it. The same God who said he would resurrect, resurrected. And he has more to say. God does every physically impossible, miraculous thing that he prophesies he will do. Highlands Community Church, let's study the prophet Isaiah together. My skeptical friend, you're invited to check this book's fantastic claims against the historical record and find them proven true. We're gonna read from a book that was written seven centuries plus before the birth of Christ. And then we're gonna cross reference with the New Testament as we do. Now I know what you've got in your pocket. You've got this accusation of circular reasoning, Campbell, ready, but put it away. Here's why. Isaiah and Matthew, one of the gospels, are separate documents. Now you're privileged to live in an era wherein these two documents are bound by a single book spine for your convenience. But this does not mean that somebody sat down in one sitting and wrote all of this. Even the most militant atheistic of God-hating archeologists admits that Isaiah is older than Matthew. So it is not circular reasoning. It is quite linear from Isaiah to Matthew to you. This is a book of prophecy. In the Hebrew Bible, this would fit within what was called the Nevi'im. The Hebrew Bible has this acronym, the Tanakh, among other names. And Tanakh, if I can use English letters, is like T-N-K. T standing for Torah. That's like the law. That's what we studied when we studied Genesis and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And then it has the Nevi'im, that's the prophets, like Isaiah, which we're studying now. What we just finished studying with Proverbs and Song of Songs, these would fit under what's called the Ketubim, the writings of wisdom. Your books in the Hebrew Bible would differ slightly from our own subdivisions in the modern day Protestant Bible, for example, wherein Samuel was just one big book in the Hebrew Bible. Our Bible divides it into two writings. It's the same text. This is the Old Testament and it foreshadows the New Testament. And my skeptical friend, you have to have a response to this because generations past saw Jesus himself claim to be the fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied. So if you were to say that Jesus does not fulfill these prophecies, you must take that up with Jesus and accuse him of lying. This is the prophet Isaiah writing to a beleaguered people who didn't realize the extent of their own depravity. You see, there was a schism. God made a promise to Abraham to bring about this great nation and bless all the nations of the earth through it. That nation taken from the slaves of Egypt, miraculously in a generation across the Exodus sands of the desert to arrive in the land of Canaan, simultaneously pouring out God's wrath upon the inhabitants of Canaan as he prophesied he would for four centuries and then giving the land to his people eventually would come to Samuel, who was kind of like the final judge and the first prophet in some ways and, and say to him, we wanna be like other nations. We want a king who will fight, all, fight our battles for us. And so even in this, God's sovereignty is at work because it's through that kingly line, through that monarchical family that God would bring about the Messiah. So they initially choose the most impressive quarterback in their midst, Saul, who crashes and burns. It's with the little dude, David, who slew Goliath that God has anointed his, his chosen king and prophesied that the Messiah would come about through him. Now, David's son, Solomon, who wrote the books that we just finished studying, Song of Songs and Proverbs, would do more than crash and burn. 
he would outright forsake God and institute pagan worship just across the valley from where the temple was in Jerusalem. And for this, the throne that would be given to his son would be fractured. His son, Rehoboam, it's David's grandson, would be abandoned by the 12 tribes initially. They would say that he wasn't to be their king. Now, out of faithfulness to God's promise to his grandfather, David, there was the tribe of Judah that remained loyal to Rehoboam. And because the tribe of Benjamin believed that all the prophecies regarding the Messiah who would come about through David were true, they would stick with Judah. And so both the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin together would become the new kingdom of Judah, whose king resided in Jerusalem. So Israel was broken in half. Now, eventually Judah would forget Yahweh, forget God's commands, forget the covenant, forget their own history and where they came from and whose they were. And then the third king of Judah named Asa, after whom one of my sons is named, dusts off this ancient book. Now, it wasn't this big back then. It looked, looked more like that. <laughs> rediscovers the word of God and their origin and who their God is. And then revival sweeps in and they thrive again. And it's beautiful. Asa would not be a perfect king, but this beautiful way in which he would dust off the scriptures and bring revival to his land gives us hope because it worked before it can work again. Amen, Highlands Community Church. Now this prophet Isaiah shows up ministering to, prophesying to the 13th through the 16th kings of Judah. And he didn't prophesy with a condescending voice. If anything, when he's called to become a prophet in Isaiah chapter six, which we'll study and explore the Bible in our small groups and also in our sermon plan. When he's called to be a prophet, he encounters God in his throne room with a train of God's robe just fills the whole temple. And it's a remarkably similar description to Ezekiel's description in the throne room, a, re a remarkably similar description to John's description of the throne room centuries later. And his first reaction is not what you think it is, my skeptical friend who has a bone to pick with God. He doesn't kick the door down and stick his finger in God's face. He's immediately stricken with woe and conviction to behold the holiness of God is to immediately become self-aware of your own depravity. And he says, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. And so right there at his point of confession, one of the angels brings an altar from the burning incense and presses it to his mouth. And his sin is atoned for. And now he's able to speak God's words to God's people. Other people had done this before. Elijah did this before. Elisha did this before. Eli Elisha was Elijah's protege, but they just spoke. Their ministry was oral. They would communicate verbally. They didn't actually write Bible books, but their stories are in books of the Bible. Isaiah's ministry, however, is what we're going to study. It was written, it was prophesied to the kings of Judah beginning with Uzziah. And we can test its accounts by modern day events. There's some, there's some criticism about this book's authorship. There's a belief that there may have been multiple authors named Proto-Isaiah, who's the real Isaiah, Deutero-Isaiah, who's the second Isaiah, perhaps a student of Isaiah's or a scribe, and then Trito-Isaiah, who might have likewise written other portions of the book or made revisions and addendums onto what Isaiah wrote. This kind of theory comes up only because Isaiah's prophecies were miraculous and they all came true. Isaiah was able to name, <clears throat> for example, Cyrus, the king of Persia, before he even existed. 
God was in the business of choosing what people's names would be before they were born, prophesying them in the Bible and then instructing parents to name their children what he said elsewhere. I mean, like this same book in Isaiah 66, eight foretells the rebirth of the whole nation of Israel in a day. Now that is far more fantastical acclaim to me than just the name of a king who was yet to be born. Yet it's believed in part because of these fantastic claims that are just difficult to grasp in the face of fulfilled prophecy. We want to rationalize it away, but in part also because of the change in the literary structure from chapters one through 39 to chapters 40 through 66, that somebody else came through and wrote it. It's believed that Isaiah's prophecy of this coming king, Persia, would be so on the nose and so accurate and so obviously Cyrus that the scribe just went ahead and wrote Cyrus's name in. And I believe that this further proves and confirms the fact that Isaiah's prophecy was true. Even if Deutero-Isaiah and Trito-Isaiah are real, the word of God remains intact, but I believe that it's miraculous. Moreover, I believe that the very act of with a hard heart, trying to rationalize and explain away these prophecies, redate them, reattribute them so that we can sleep better at night rather than believing that God's word is true and that he prophesies what will happen before it happens. I believe that that in and of itself is a fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied. I think it's this act of super meta nonfiction that Isaiah would prophesy that people wouldn't believe because of their hard hearts and that we with hard hearts would not believe and then try to reattribute his words to somebody else. Don't demand a miracle from God. You're gonna behold a sufficient miracle now to have faith and believe and be saved forevermore. Jesus himself would take the words of Isaiah and proclaim them fulfilled in him. In fact, Jesus would make this claim about both the first half and the last half of Isaiah. In Mark chapter seven, verse six, he answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines, human commands. That's Isaiah 29, 13. That's the first half of the book. Then in Matthew 12, 16 through 21, you see that Jesus claims Isaiah 42, one through four. That's in the second half of the book, also attributing it to Isaiah. If Jesus believed that Isaiah wrote both chapters one through 39 and chapters 40 through 66, I believe it too. This is miraculous. It's all the proof you're ever gonna need that Jesus is Lord. It's the opposite of circular reasoning. And it's the word of God. Let's read Isaiah together. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah. Listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's feeding trough, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand you're gonna find that this book opens up with some words of condemnation. It's difficult and it's hard, but even in these opening chapters, there's this brilliant light that erupts through the glimmer of hope within each of them. If nothing else, I want you to take that from Isaiah, that even in full onslaught of life at its worst, you can depend upon God. And there is hope, there is hope. So face full on the word of God, bleak as it may seem in the opening chapters, and then see, even in these opening chapters, the coming hope, the coming grace, the coming redemption and restoration that he's promising, even as he proclaims, even as he proclaims all of this bad news to his own people. 
O sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, brood of evildoers, depraved children. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on him. Why do you want more beatings? Why do you keep on rebelling? The whole head is hurt. The whole heart is sick. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, no spot is uninjured. Wounds, welts, and festering sores, not cleansed, bandaged, or soothed with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities burned down. Foreigners devour your fields right in front of you. A desolation like a place demolished by foreigners. Daughter Zion is abandoned like a shelter in a vineyard, like a shack in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of armies had not left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would resemble Gomorrah. So the people of God have turned their backs on God. They've forgotten whose they are. May we as the church rise up and remind our people whose they are. Remind them the truth of gospel. But the church doesn't do this. Nobody will. A culture left untethered to authoritative truth will always descend into depravity. And unless the church speaks up, nobody will. And we will descend further and further into madness. Every generation of every long forgotten culture had the steering wheel grabbed by the most depraved among them and yanked the whole culture in the direction of the same ditch that every other past forgotten culture had crashed into before. It is only revival that God brings about corporately that could steer them back on the right path. And this is going to come about through the church highlands. Would you look at the ministry of Isaiah, what he did in the context of Judah and do likewise at the water cooler at your workplace and the barbecue with the proper number of people in attendance. They were prosperous financially, but they were committing idolatry. We as Americans have something similar going on. I mean, all in all, collectively, even despite, despite you know, our, our, our hardship brought on by the coronavirus, even before that hit, we were seeing a roaring economy. And this kind of prosperity can cause people to forget that they need God. I've got these riches. Why do I need God? This is why when your friend goes on a mission trip to a third world country, they see more of that cool, spiritual, miraculous stuff that we crave. Because in America, our, our false God is mammon. We have all this stuff. So we feel like we don't need God. The people to whom Isaiah was speaking originally, likewise, did have a degree of financial prosperity. However, the rich among them got rich by de- depriving the poor of it. They would cordon off land in such a way that there was no place for the poor. And this is This is going to be central to one of the things that God is rebuking them for, for their neglect of the poor among them, for not doing justice to people who needed it. Now, he just named Sodom and Gomorrah in verse nine. And this is worth mentioning because this is used as a misinterpretation by even published works that come from the LGBTQIAAP plus community. Yes, I told you that abbreviation was gonna, was gonna grow. It's grown and it's gonna grow more. Wherein these prophecies from Isaiah warning Judah and collectively Israel about their neglect of the poor was reframed as supposedly the real reason why God poured fire down on Sodom and Gomorrah. Not because they rejected the truth of God for a lie and as a symptom of that, indulged in sexual sin, but because they neglected the poor. It is a fatuous misreading of the text's obvious prima facie message. If you skip verse one, which names real live kings at real live times in a real live nation known as Judah, Uzziah, Ahaz, Jotham, Hezekiah, 
See how the Bible sets itself up for failure archeologically, but over and over again succeeds, my skeptical friend. It's amazing. They would take this and try to reapply it to Sodom and Gomorrah. We know to whom he's writing because he said it in the first verse. And then you see the words like and resemble in verse nine. We would be like Sodom. We would resemble Gomorrah. He's not actually writing to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's insulting Judah by saying that they are like Sodom, that they resemble Gomorrah. This is what the text says. My LGBTQIAAP plus friend, this was written to Judah and it was insulting them to call them Sodom and Gomorrah. But if you skip the first nine verses and start with verse 10, I could see how in a first grade failure of basic reading comprehension, you might think that that's who Isaiah is talking to. Look at verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. This is where that misinterpretation comes from because this is a misrepresentation of God's word. I feel it necessary to bring up and clarify here. Read the whole book, my friend. So he's insulting Judah by calling them Sodom and Gomorrah. What are all your sacrifices to me? Asks the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls and lambs or male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing useless offerings. This is difficult stuff. I've got this, I've got this weird habit I, I got to tell you about. Just go with me on this. Um, when I'm driving my car and there's worship music playing and I'm just kind of mouthing the words and humming the melody and just mindlessly by rote reciting what's going on in the radio and the music, I suddenly catch myself and then violently like turn the music off and get my heart right and then re-engage. And, and I know there's probably somebody out there with a PhD dissertation showing me that I'm actually further internalizing the words or what have you, but I don't want to... I don't want to be jaded by those words. I don't want to say them without engaging God with my whole heart. I don't want to worship in anything other than, anything less than full spirit, full truth. Because it just seems wrong to me to be like reciting words, particularly words of scripture while I'm turning on my blinker and navigating. And then I'm also in my head thinking about season five of the office when Dwight cut the face off the CPR dummy and like trying to count the number of seconds and see if he really had time to do it. And then meanwhile, I'm mouthing the words of God to God. I, I catch myself, I stop it because I think about this. Listen to what God says to Judah about their heartless worship. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, these are festivals and Sabbaths and calling the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I'm tired of putting up with them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. When we as New Testament believers, not bound to the same kinds of Old Testament worship sacrifices and observations of the law that were prescribed by the Old Testament. When we as New Testament worshipers, likewise, worship in something less than our spirit and something other than truth, we're worshiping the same God who said this to Judah. God didn't suffer a schizophrenic episode between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He feels the exact same way about holiness today that he did then. 
He hasn't lowered the bar in the New Testament. It's just that the grace of the cross is so colossal that it atones for our sin. And we no longer through these sacrifices see the cost borne out in front of us. The closest thing we have to that is, is communion. And so we can grow accustomed to this grace and feel entitled to it and mistake the grace that's poured out by the cross for God changing his mind about sin for a little bit until, until revelation happens. We're worshiping the exact same God who said this to his people in the Old Testament. So when you come to Highlands or you tune in online and you just make a melody with your mouth and your heart is far from God, God finds that detestable. He finds it disgusting. May we repent of that. May this not be said of us. Rather with the anthem of our heart be Psalm 1914. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. May we never worship God with anything but our whole hearts in spirit and in truth. And this is more difficult for you, especially as you watch online than any generation of believer before you perhaps, because you've never had so many devices and screens and distractions right there with you in the worship moment. Some of you need to stay home because you have people who are at higher risk with you. And I get that, but watch out, watch out. When you worship God, worship with your whole heart. When you engage in the word, shut out distraction to the glory of God. Look at how God felt about Judah's heartless worship. And may the same thing not be said about our worship. But guess what? It's about to get this glimmer of hope. Look at what he calls Judah to do beginning in verse 16. Wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil, learn to do what is good. Pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come, let us settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Do you hear me, my skeptical friend? Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This faithful town, what an adulteress she has become. She was once full of justice. Righteousness once dwelt in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross to be discarded. Your beer is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, fiends of thieves, friends of thieves. They all love graft and chase after bribes. They do not defend the rights of the followers and the widow's case never comes before them. Therefore, the Lord God of armies, the mighty one of Israel declares, ah, I will get even with my foes. I will take revenge against my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and will burn away your dross completely. I will remove your impurities. Listen to this. I will restore your judges to what they were at first and your advisors to what they were at the start. Afterward, you will be called the righteous city, a faithful town. Zion, that's this holy hill in Jerusalem, will be redeemed by justice. Those who repent by righteousness. At the same time, both rebels and sinners will be broken and those who abandon the Lord will perish. Indeed, they will be ashamed of the sacred trees you desired. And you will be embarrassed because of the garden shrines you have chosen, talking about their idolatry. For you will become like an oak, whose leaves are withered and like a garden without water. The strong one will become tender and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to extinguish the flames. This is the opening chapter of Isaiah. And the first 39 chapters together are all going to resemble the same kind of strong rebuke and coming condemnation with a glimmer of hope and restoration to be washed clean, to be restored, to be renewed. 
When we get to chapter 40, it's gonna be much more pleasant, but I want you to listen to this. This is just as inspired as the happy words. Okay, the, the, the corporate church in America has reaped what we've sown by preaching only happy passages. This is the whole word of God. Let it convict you if it convicts you. Listen to this. This is the word of God. These people had perfect church attendance. They even tithed, but their hearts were far from God. He tells them to stop bringing useless offerings. And he promises his coming purging of the evil among them. The objective here is not just uh, an angry God who wants to smash his own sandcastle, but he wants to see it restored and made new and cleansed. So through the course of the book, you're gonna see more stories about Isaiah, particularly in the first 39 chapters, wherein Isaiah discloses some of the stuff in his own personal life. We don't know a whole lot about Isaiah, really just mostly his prophecy. He gets called of God in chapter six. We're gonna study that and explore the Bible and also in our sermons. And then comes chapter seven. And chapter seven, verse 10, opens up with a really, really exciting premise. Look at this. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, Ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Sheol was this pit, the place of the dead in the Old Testament. As high as heaven means that this thing could be anything from the bottom of Sheol to the top of heaven. Ask me for a sign. Man, my imagination is running wild with what I would ask for if I had that kind of opportunity from God. I mean, it's incredible. I can see it right now. I'd ask for this like a big giant that of Biscoff crunchy cookie butter that's as tall as heaven. And it's where we baptize people and the coming revival where the Seahawks and the Seminoles win every game and telemarketers catch on fire every time they call me about my car's extended warranty. And it's it'd probably, it'd probably be hard to baptize somebody in cookie butter because you'd have to like push them into it. <laughs> Go under. See what I mean? It's probably good that I haven't been given this opportunity from God. But Ahaz was given the opportunity and then he blows it. Look at verse two, verse 12. But Ahaz replied, I will not ask, I will not test the Lord. Isaiah said, listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son and name him Emmanuel. There it is. It's one of the most specific prophecies about the Messiah to come up to this point in history. And it echoes beautifully exactly what God himself said in Eden in Genesis 3.15, that the one who would destroy the works of the devil would come from woman. The virgin birth is prophesied specifically right here in Isaiah 7.14. And I don't wanna answer the question, why the virgin birth? It's not arbitrary. Like everything in God's word, it is intentional. So why the virgin birth? This description of a virgin birth is wholly distinctive from pagan mythologies, whose descriptions of gods coming down and near pornographic descriptions of impregnating women to produce demigods has nothing to do with what we've just read. The whole point is that there is no, there is no sex act involved here. This is a virgin birth. And the fact that there's no male agent involved in the conception of this child is where our Catholic friends get the word immaculate from. That the Messiah would be born from a virgin means that he would not be born inheriting the same sin nature that you and I have had from Adam and Eve. Rather, he is born from without and now condescends to us in the most beautiful imaginable use of the word condescend. 
So he doesn't bear the same sin nature that we do. He could be perfect, which means that unlike every bull and goat and lamb and grain offering of the Old Testament that had to be offered year after year over and over again. See the book of Hebrews. This sacrifice would be not symbolic, but efficacious, not temporary, but perfect and forevermore. This is why we call him the lamb of God with the capital L. The virgin birth is imitated in other pagan faiths, but sometimes especially students, you'll hear this claim that, well, Horus was born of a virgin long before Jesus was born. It predates Christianity. Therefore, Christianity was imitating Horus. And it's a bunch of nonsense. First of all, that something happened before the birth of Christ doesn't mean that it happened before Christianity. We're reading a book right now that was written several centuries before the birth of Christ, but it's part of Christianity because Old Testament Judaism is the foundation for New Testament Christianity. Christianity proper began with Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the very origins of matter, my friend. There's nothing before that. And these prophecies likewise were imitated by other pagan faiths. So just because Horus's birth is foretold, it was, it was, the story was told before the birth of Christ doesn't mean that the birth of Christ was imitating Horus. Of all the false gods that make a cartoon YouTube video about, you literally chose one of the gods who was humiliated by Yahweh in the plagues of Egypt. Evidently, Horus did not have sovereignty over the sun. Ra did not have sovereignty over the sun. Horus and Ra are the same guy and God proved that he is the one who's sovereign over the sun. See our sermon on Romans chapter nine. This virgin birth was so specific, it was miraculous, it was intentional, that God would come from without, not afflicted by the sin nature, and that his very arrival itself would be miraculous. It's physically impossible, but that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Rather, that proves that by nature, it was miraculous. I believe in the virgin birth. The reason that Orthodox Jews would critique this is that they don't want to admit that Yeshua of Nazareth is Messiah, that Jesus is the Messiah. I've heard this blithe critique given that the word Alma in Hebrew doesn't mean virgin and is often given from an Orthodox Jew with a critical view of New Testament Christianity. But here's the thing, man, every Christian pastor with a basic MDiv degree has training in Hebrew to the point that we can read Hebrew too. And we know what says the manuscripts you read from. And we know what the word Alma means. Yes, it means young woman, unmarried woman. It also means virgin. Moreover, Mary and Joseph, the New Testament account, very clear, were not intimate before Jesus was born. I believe we'd call that a virgin birth. It's all intentional. It's not arbitrary. It was foretold. It could not possibly be coincidence. It is a miracle of God. He said he would do it in Isaiah 7, 14 and look at the biblical account of where he does it. In Matthew chapter one, beginning in verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. 
See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. That's Isaiah 7, 14, which we just read, which is translated God with us. Emmanuel means God with us. Now the Christmas carol makes sense. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but he did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son and he named him Jesus. In the rest of chapter seven of Isaiah, he's gonna go on to prophesy the Assyrian nation, which was a growing empire at the time, invading. They were excellent beekeepers. He uses the poetic imagery of a bee. He also describes how they would abandon their agricultural society, become more pastoral in nature, shepherding flocks and things like this. He describes exactly what would take place in the beginning of the end that would ultimately arrive in the Babylonian captivity of ancient Judah and all of Israel. These prophecies all came true. So did the prophecy about the coming Christ. They named him Jesus. Isaiah was written seven centuries plus before the birth of Jesus. And no, it is not circular reasoning. Just because for your convenience, both Isaiah and Matthew are in the same book spine now. These are two separate documents from the ancient Isaiah to Matthew to you. Let's level here, my skeptical friend. This is a miraculous claim. Jesus himself claims to be the fulfillment of what Isaiah foretold. We've just read Isaiah foretelling the virgin birth. We see it claimed in Matthew chapter one. Do you believe? You have this growing suspicion in your heart, this figure who's always been in the corner in your life, deep down, let's be real. You've always known, you've always known that God is real. He's always been there. You know that this universe couldn't have created itself. You know that he's always been at work. Deep down, you know that the gospel's true, but be honest here. You just have this sin in your life that you don't wanna repent from. Would you come to believe in Jesus today and be saved? Proclaim to him that you believe what we've just read is true. And by faith, that drawing upon your heart, that's the Holy Spirit of God drawing you from death to life, from your sin to repentance, from hell to heaven. Would you believe right now, proclaim your belief that Jesus is the Messiah, that everything that God says he's gonna do, he does. And that everything Isaiah says the, the Messiah would do, Jesus did. Proclaim with me right now your belief that Jesus is the Messiah and be be saved, be saved, be saved. Right now, God, I believe that Isaiah prophesied Jesus's birth. I believe that Isaiah said that the virgin would conceive. They would name him Emmanuel. God, I believe that's Jesus. I believe God that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son. That if I would believe in him, I would not die, but have everlasting life. I confess, God, that just like the original recipients of Isaiah, just like the people of Judah, I've got sin in my life and the wages of my sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And I believe that you alone, Jesus, are the fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied. I believe that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no way I can come to God the Father except through you, Jesus. So right here and now, convinced by faith that Isaiah's prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Say it out loud right now. Say, Jesus is Lord. Say it, Jesus is Lord. And type it in the comments too. God, I believe that you raised Jesus from the dead. I believe that Jesus is the Messiah prophesied. God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.